Podcast with the most Clyde and you're tuned into Drone Encoded, the podcast where I nerd the hell about animated media of all kinds, deep diving into a range of specific topics. You know, we're talking shows, movies, um, specific characters, creators, theories, you name it, whatever man, anything goes. Today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite spooky movies ever. I'm a big horror fan, but th- this hits several marks for me. It's Coraline. Ah, I love this movie so much, guys. It's a childhood favorite. Um, originally, it was a 2002 book by the incredible Neil Gaiman, who is an author of Good Omens, American Gods, DC's Sandman comics, just in an incredible legend of a guy. I read the book once several years ago, so I don't remember it that well, but it's it's really good. There's less moments of levity in it, so it feels a lot darker, and there's no YB, but otherwise the stories are essentially the same. It's, it's fairly faithful. It was directed by Henry Selick, um, who directed Nightmare Before Christmas, James and the Giant Peach, and the weird and kind of unfairly maligned monkey bone. Like, I understand why it is maligned, but it, it's it's not that bad of a movie. Now, Coraline the Film came out in 2009, and it's about a girl whose family have recently moved towns to a really old house, and she feels kind of isolated by her newfound lack of friends and lack of things to do around her and especially how neglectful her parents are being, clearly distracted by the adjustment of moving and new jobs themselves. And while exploring the house one day, she finds a tiny door, and when her mother opens it, there's nothing but bricks behind it, but later that night, she goes back to it to discover a strange tunnel that leads her to what seems like a parallel world where her other mother and father are fun, doting parents, and everything is much more vibrant, fun, and musical. Things take a sinister turn when she's trapped there, and it turns out the entire parallel world is a construction made to lure children into giving up their souls to the Baldum, that is the other mother, and Coraline has to must up all her bravery and cunning to save herself and her parents, and also the souls of the Baldum's previous previous victims you know no pressure whatever easy peasy now when discussions for a movie for the book started neil gaiman only wanted henry Selick to direct it that was basically his one thing as an admirer of nightmare before christmas and james and the giant peach he thought henry Selick was the only one who could be able to bring the right balance of fear and you know, childlike whimsy to it. And he was so adamant that Selick should direct it that he even offered him the film option for free, which is wild. It's not something you generally do unless you straight up being scammed. So Gaiman's just awesome. He wanted this to be as good as possible. Okay, let's talk about the animation and art of the film because there's a lot to unpack. It's probably what I'm going to be talking about most. Um... Animation is obviously super important in animations because they're animated. 
But with this film, the art and composition is almost entirely used to accentuate the themes and atmosphere and plot in so many fine details. It's packed with so much visual symbolism and motifs, like top to bottom, in a way that's really heady, you know, in the sort of way that, like, annoying heady literature uses them or some of the artsier or tour type films. And what's so great about this movie is that it never really bogs down the pacing like a lot of, like, Snyder's films do, and it doesn't really get swallowed up in its own anal cavity like an Aronofsky film, for instance. It's a really lean film. Nothing happens there unnecessarily. Very little. The visual choices are so deeply thought out, but they're all done to make the film creepier or more fun at the right moments instead of being like, hey, look at us, we're so smart, you know? Like... For instance, there's this, um, the visuals of the film in the outside world, there's this really dull environment, you know, muddy earth tones and gray skies. Even the colorful things are kind of this drained pastel palette all around in the real world, really, reflecting the monotony of Coraline's new life. You know, the, um, the pink palace, which is the new home that she's moved into, is this sort of drained faded pink color but her yellow raincoat and blue hair makes a pop against the background in the start of the film as if to get give a sense that she's what adds color to the world in the less literal sense they visually express a imaginative okay i don't like this word but spunky nature with loads of little details that make her feel a lot more real like that color contrast showing how she finds joy in the tiny, boring little moments of life. Like how she jumps on a carpet ripple that just keeps shifting to flatten it, or annoying her dad by playing with a creaky door, or leaping downstairs instead of walking normally, pulling a branch from a bush and deciding to go explore with it as a dowsing rod. None of these are like essential to the plot development really, they're these little extra bits that give us a deeper insight to the kind of person our protagonist is without a lot of exposition. It's a great subtle bit of show don't tell that this film does a lot of, and considering how painstaking motion stop motion animation is, all of it is very deliberate and thought out. There's also this bug motif that shows up in the film. It's pretty obvious in the other world, like where the other mother eats cocoa beetles. And the thing that upsets me most about this is they didn't take the opportunity to make it roaches and make a chocroach joke. That really bugged me. Get it? Bugged me? I'm sorry, don't flee. Wait, I didn't mean that. That, that, that pun was on, wasn't on purpose. <laughs> Moving on. There's the praying mantis thing that the other father is riding when Coraline is looking for the ghost children's souls. The several glowing furniture bugs in the room with the little tunnel door in the scene after she realizes how tiny the other world is. There's the paper dragonflies flying around in Coraline's room in the other world. And the fact that the beldam transforms into a tall spider lady and turns the room into a spider web also, obviously. But in 
It's a bit more subtle in the real world, but it's absolutely still there. Coraline's room is in the real world is um, filled with these dragonfly decorations around her bed, and that's what comes to life in the other world. Um, there's also how Coraline finds a whole bunch of bugs when she's exploring the house and smashes them with her bare hands, which is just. Ugh. Oh yeah, uh, her hairpin is also like I think a dragonfly. I'm not sure, it's some kind of bug. And the thing that's holding her framed photo of her friends from back home in Pontiac, I think, um, from before she moved, it's, it's a praying mantis. There's this very subtle but 100% there bug pattern on the wallpaper um, in the room with a little door on it also. And YB and the cat were hunting banana slugs outside. It's pretty interesting that they do this since Coraline's parents are like gardening writers? Gardening journalists? Is that a thing? I don't know, but they, they write about gardening. Point is, bugs are mostly the natural enemy of gardeners because they generally mess up their gardens. So there's a symbolic conflict who loves bugs. Another bit of visual symbolism I loved is the way the ghost children come to Coraline when they're free in in dreams, reminiscent of the starry night from Van Gogh. It's such a gorgeous pair of sequences and a nice way of both showing us that they've ascended and that Coraline is being contacted through dreams. The most famous visual motif for this film, though, is almost certainly the whole buttons for eyes thing. The idea here being that eyes are the windows to the soul, and by signing over your eyes to the other mother, you're giving her your soul. Which is also why finding the ghost children's eyes is what saves them from the other mother's grasp. Is also the shadow of a button slowly covering the other world's moon when Coraline is searching for the ghost children's eyes to show Coraline since that once the moon is a button, her soul will be the Baldoms. The art direction is really clever in how it inspires horror also. Obviously lighting is very important, but the shape of the environment itself is used very well to this, this effect also. With the real world and less hostile moments in the other world, consistently showing this neatly lined architecture, nearly perfectly symmetrical shot composition, like when Coraline's in the kitchen and her parents are both working, so when the film, when the environment in the film gets all janky and slanted, things just feel a little off. And this builds the sort of ominous atmosphere, like when Coraline discovers the tunnel behind the secret door and it's this weird moving collection of janky irregular circles that almost look like a child angrily drew them that are connected to each other. Coraline is fascinated, but we as an audience already feel uneasy about the tunnel. But just think about how much less sinister the scene would feel like if it was like slick like the inside of a super tube. I feel like that would have taken a lot of the impact out of it. The use of lighting is so, so crucial to the atmosphere in this movie though. The sets in the real quote-unquote world, because this is a cartoon, in the real world is lit with a sort of subdued white lighting that gives it this wintry, but not quite dull feel sometimes. Which 
it's not that dull until you compare it with the lighting in the rooms of the other house when Coraline first visits it has this warmer yellow lighting that makes everything feel a bit more vibrant and interesting just from that alone even the things that are just exact copies of a real house the brighter lightning the brighter lighting turns Sickly later on with the neons of the living room Coraline finds the beldam in when she's looking for a way back home. Even before the scene goes from supremely disturb goes to the supremely disturbing places it does, even besides the chocolate sweets that she got offered, you get this sense that things are a lot more unsafe now and the facade of niceness is about to fall just through the lighting. It's almost like a fruit that's gotten a bit overripe, and the lighting only gets more sinister and rotten, turning to the sickly green later. It's also really clever about using these little added flourishes in detail as foreshadowing that might not register immediately, but still adds to the suspense and tension like just bit by bit. Like the way they use the other mother's hand as this really important motif throughout the movie, it's literally one of the first things you see in the film even like in the opening sequence the first time um, when she's constructing the doll you just see these spindly little hands moving around and the first time Coraline visits the other world and there's this moment where lightning crackles in the view of the window and the lightning streak looks just like the hand that you see at the start of the film all needle-like and long almost trying to grab Coraline. It's literally less than a second, but the way it cuts into this vibrant, happy scene where she's being spoiled with whatever she wants is one of the first things that gives a slight sense of something's not quite right here. And when Coraline goes to Miss Forcible and Spink's place to tell them about her quote-unquote dream, they read her tea leaves and we are hit with a more flagrant layer of foreshadowing with the tea leaves looking like a creepy bony long hand. We of course later learn this is what Beldam's hands look like for sure and also foreshadows it escaping to the real world when Coraline thinks she's finally safe. There's actually a whole bunch of seemingly random close-ups of her right hand too. I I can think of at least two different examples where she's tapping her fingers on the table, just like impatiently waiting. Also weird detail that I don't know whether it was on purpose or not is that when the other mother taps her fingers the first time and she's still pretending to be nice, she does it the wrong way, leading with her index finger instead of her pinky, but does it the normal way later on when she's all 90s runway model looking. I, I could read into that more but I'll try not to get hung up on things that aren't totally clearly on purpose. The hands are also kind of used as a symbolism of a grasp on Coraline, kind of like near the end of the film where these needle-like hand-shaped clouds come sort of part from the moon, you know, they like lift away from the moon basically, yeah. Oh, and the transitions in this movie so good. The scene transitions are all really wonderful. Sometimes like Satoshi Kon level stuff. 
obviously there's like that now famous audio transition of the beldum tapping the side of a button eye making this clink clink sound as Coraline looks away that seemingly that's like completely seamlessly morphs into this dripping sound as the as you look into the like the water tapping down i don't know if i'm explaining this right which i guess is sound not animation but still it's 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 really cool another thing about this moment you you know how the lead up to it is Coraline asking for a clue tapping on her eye actually was the clue because she had to find where the eyes were this is a cool little nerd detail nothing too significant really the transition where Coraline has her ear on the ro- on her, the hole in the well also like near the start of the film as it starts to rain and there's this crossfade as the camera orientation changes 90 degrees and she's suddenly inside her house looking at the downpour. It's some really brilliant stuff. Oh, it is like, wow. The transitions from the other world to the real world are also pretty smart too. It's, though it's a lot more subtle and less out there. In terms of pure animation and art direction, Coraline is so far ahead of just about every stop-motion animation, really. Except maybe Kubo and the Two Strings, which was actually done by the same studio created specifically to make Coraline, like her. So, that's cool. Uh, If there is a weak aspect to this film, it's the soundtrack, though. The sound, the sound editing itself is incredible. Like the eye tap that changes to the water drop, genius, genius stuff. And of course, I love Coraline's song by the other father. Like what a classic! Come on. However, that happens once, and the actual background music is a little bit too incessant. Like it barely stops for a minute for like the first half of the film, and it lets the film down pretty often, to be honest. It's not terrible at all, but I really wish the film was more comfortable allowing itself to stew in the silence. A lot of great tension can be built like that, and I feel like it was a lost opportunity. They kind of wanted to give the film this feeling of whimsy with a lot of the soundtracking, but most of the time it just winds up sounding like substandard adventure video game loading music. Mr. Babinski's leitmotif though, leitmotif, I don't know how to pronounce that, is... A breath of fresh air to be honest and it feels pretty exciting and agile making it quite perfect for him really okay let's talk a bit about Coraline and the Beldum Coraline's a skeptical girl she's like skeptical of people but especially of adults she's really strong-willed and brave strong-willed is the nicer of putting it she's stubborn and obviously very imaginative, but pretty mature for her age too. Although she she's a little selfish. Most stories like this have main characters with arcs going from meek and easily scared into the strong world bravery and maturity, like Spirited Away, for example, which kind of shares this Alice in Wonderland going to an other world vibe. You know, a clear character growth. But but she already has these things. So her journey is more about affirmation when you start to doubt yourself. You see, 
the Bellum kind of makes her scared and she has to like tell herself you don't have to don't be scared be brave when she's walking into the kitchen and about to um, challenge the Beldum to the game and her new environment and her, pa- her parents neglect leaves her feeling sort of isolated and that starts making her unsure of herself already and then comes this creature to take advantage of those insecurities offer her a life she wants at the cost of retreating from the real world kind of in a similar way to depression really you know how it sucks you in when you're unable to deal with the real life and you dwell on old memories or fantasies and there's a decent argu- argument argument that Coraline's arc is supposed to be an allegory for or symbolism of um, depression. You know, everything in your life starts to feel grey and listless. You start dwelling on an idealized world you know you can't really have or go back to. You start to feel distanced from your real life the more you get sucked into it, into this comfort of the fantasy. I think of when Coraline escaped the Beldum and her parents were missing that heartbreaking scene where she sleeps in their bedroom, makes the pillows look like them and cries herself to sleep. Wow, that that, that kind of really crushed me a bit. And it's not like it wouldn't make sense for her to be depressed, you know, the whole feeling neglected thing, the loneliness of starting over where you have no friends, there is something to it. And thinking of this, thinking of the story in terms of a character building themselves up again instead of a transformation of character is kind of really powerful to me. The idea that kids have to go through a thing to become fully formed individuals never really gelled with me. And to see a story about finding your way back to yourself and overcoming times of doubt is really pretty heartwarming. The Beldum has gotten the best of all these trusting, naive kids before, but met her match in this skeptical, whoop-smart, stubborn girl who simply refuses to give in to the Beldum's creepy demands. But not before the Beldum makes her waver and doubt if she can overcome, overcome this. She's, she's just a really wonderful character. The other mother is a fantastic horror villain. Ugh. Just top tier. She's sinister, manipulative, and twists sweet sentiments into something truly perverse. She's kind of like a domineering, abusive mother a bit. I actually heard a theory that the film could be an allegory for abusive parenting, but I don't know how how quite how much I quite buy this considering these um considering her real parents, yeah. Uh, the other mother's behavior, though, definitely incredibly reminiscent of toxic love. The use of gifts and treats to excuse to excuse cutting people down and justify forcing them into situations they're really uncomfortable with. The dimension of her character really give this dimension of her character really gives this realism to her fear factor that gives it a lot more bite to me. The fantasy side of her horror as a character is also, like, fantastic. Just primo nightmare stuff. 
evil soul-eating spider who can literally change her environment at will. I mean, come on. The way she transforms from looking like Coraline's mother is beautifully menacing. Uh, the scene where she turns the living room into a spiderweb is incredible and such a wonderful kind of terrifying. The best thing about her though is the slow boil of a menace, starting off vaguely unsettling and growing bit by bit by bit until she's just like a full-on slasher movie monster. She actually reminds me a lot of Pennywise from this. You know the way... um. You know the way she lures kids with a friendly disguise and creates illusions and can manipulate environments. Even the true form of Pennywise is a weird spider type monster now that I'm thinking about it. Uh, I, I kind of want to talk about the Coraline theories that there are. There's quite a few of them, but I think I'll just like talk about four. Um first one is that um, the cat is Coraline's conscience slash not really real. I think this one stems from the book because I remember this passage in it when Coraline is in the other world where they describe the way the cat speaks as sounding like the voice in her head but male. I'm not sure how much I buy it in the film but it's a fun idea. It would make sense with how in the end of the movie the cat walks on the sign and just disappears and how the cat is able to enter and exit the other world at will because why would he just have that power and other animals not? And he gives her sensible advice like being the first to tell her the world is bad because if you took a step back and looked at it logically at that point, it's clearly at the very least a strange place wherein you should keep your guard up. The theory is definitely not without problems though, because he does help her in ways it's hard to believe she did herself. And you could maybe argue that in a moment of incredible bravery, she launched herself at the beldam and ripped out her eyes like the cat crucially did for her, but it's less believable that when she was crumbling under the realization that she lost the game because the rats ran off with the ghost marble, that she was the one who managed to catch up to the rats, kill it, and get the marble back. It's even less believable because YB saw the cat more than once and he's a person in the real world. Unless he's not. And this brings us to another fun little theory, that Wyborn isn't real. This theory is mostly based off of the fact that Wyborn isn't in the book. This, the suggestion is basically that the character is Coraline's overactive imagination creating someone to talk to because she's lonely, which is one of the film's main themes, Coraline feeling neglected, and so that she's not wandering around talking to herself all the time. Which is interesting because apparently he was created specifically because they didn't want Coraline to be doing that the way that she constantly thinks to herself in the book because that just doesn't play as well on film as in literary works like imagine you saw something weird and it's like hey what was that i don't know it's it's a bit weirder to see that in a film than to be like hey what was that and someone else answers i don't know you know the the thing that is the most compelling about the series to me is that Wyborn Lovett is the, such a fake Namington fake name 
Like the only person on earth with a faker sounding name is Penn Badgley and I'm constantly amazed that that is his actual name. However, it doesn't really work very well as a theory on its own because, well, his grandmother also exists and holds an important piece of the plot as the sister of one of the ghost children and the cat, like, interacts with him. I like it in combination with the cat also being in Coraline's head, though. Especially since it does solve that big plot hole that they both see and interact with each other more than once. But I don't like it on its own as a standalone theory because it's just kind of boring, really. But if we're going to go as far as saying that um, the cat and Wyborn are in Coraline's head, why not just go all the way and say that the whole thing was in Coraline's head? Like the entire Otherworld plot. Okay, a few of you are probably going, ugh, that's just every character is in a coma in the theory that is in every single cartoon ever. But the idea is a lot more interesting and compelling to me in this case than most of those for a couple of reasons. First of all, unlike the series that are just nonsense stoner whoa moments, this theory actually adds to the themes the film definitely explores like Coraline being neglected and feeling lonely and struggling to cope with this big change of moving states away from everything she'd ever known. Coupled with the fact that it's made explicitly clear several times at the start of the movie before she even gets to the other world that she's a really imaginative kid who likes to explore, it's not that unreasonable that with a severely limited outlet for her creativity, her parents basically begging her to just leave them alone and go make up a game to play. She wouldn't start pouring herself into an imaginary world and imaginary conflict in a sort of avoidant behavior way, you know, retreating into herself. She never seems to realize how lonely she is or rejects it, and this might be an outlet she uses to cope with it. She wishes her parents would treat her better, pay more attention to her, cook her less weird food, so maybe imagines a world where they are. She, wish, she wishes things weren't as drab and lifeless as the outside world, so imagines a world where even the plants are alive. I mean, I know plants are living things technically, but not living things that can bite your ankles and wave at you and stuff. But most of all, she wishes he, she had something to do, discover, explore. She wants a game to win. The conflict with her real parents is central to the movie, but not really a conflict. It's more the avoidance of a conflict. So she invents a villain who likes to play games and is cunning and smart, or else it wouldn't be worth the trouble to imagine this world at all. The idea makes a lot of sense with the conscience cat and Wyborn isn't a real thing because we never really see anyone else talk about it. I mean, it's suggested that Miss Lovat, the landlord, is the sister of one of the ghost children, but she never actually talks about her missing sister. That's all imaginary grandson Coraline invented to play with talk. According to the theory, at least. This idea is played up a lot more in the book, but there's a lot to it within the film also. She even calls the other world a dream at first, hence her going down to Miss Forcible and Spink's apartment and having a tea leaves read. 
And it's really interesting, it's really strange that when Coraline's parents are freed from the snow globe, that they don't remember what happened at all, like complete immediate amnesia and act like they just came back from the store or something because um, maybe they did. I mean, why did Coraline remember the ghost children when she was trapped in the murder then? It's just an awfully weird detail that feels kind of unnecessary. Like, how would them having remembered what happened have changed the resolution of the story? This whole escapist fantasy is happening because she feels neglected by her parents who are overwhelmed with all the trappings of setting up a new, setting up a new home in a new town with new jobs. So, the neglect is pretty clearly a new thing because Coraline is very obviously incredibly annoyed by it and not used to it at all. And it stands to reason that it wouldn't be permanent either, just temporary until they settle into their new lives. So is it a coincidence that as soon as the parents start paying more attention to her and extend an olive branch of apology by giving her those gloves that she wanted, that her escapist fantasy has to be resolved now and that they now have time to garden in the front of the pink palace? You might maybe be going but what about when she was in the real world and her parents were missing and she was all depressed and made a pillow version of them and to that i say shut up stop saying that <laughs> i kid I, I think going by this theory that part was also kind of in her head her realizing just how much she misses her parents and that these escapist fantasies aren't enough that she needs them like the one and only like big flaw in this theory is that it requires Wyborn to be a fantasy or the whole bunch of like an entire bunch of plot holes start showing up. But Miss Lovett, his grandmother, comes to the Pink Palace with him by the end of the film, so unless Coraline is also imagining her, the whole thing just sort of unravels because if she's really there at the end of the film, Wyborn is real the doll is real, and the cat is real, and, 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 you know? I mean, you could say Miss Lovett being there is also a fantasy, but I don't know if I want to suspend my disbelief that much for convenience. That's still a very wonderful theory, and I, I like it a lot. It's just not perfect, you know? An almost perfect theory exists at the opposite end of the spectrum, though. And I love this one because it just makes everything so much creepier. Not only is everything and everyone real or an illusion made by the Beldum, but Coraline isn't escaping the Beldum at all. I'm aware some YouTube people like the theorizer did like an in-depth look at this theory. I haven't looked at what they have yet, so if there are similarities, they're a coincidence, kind of. I feel like for the theory to work, there are some things you have to see in it, so it will pop up in everyone's version of the theory. But I really wanted to explore this theory on my own because it just seemed like such a fun, rich idea. I love those horror movies where you realize right at the end, trying to escape was hopeless, or the monster survived, or was just toying with you the whole time, or you played right into their hands or whatever. And that's actually what got me thinking about this theory. You see, right at the end of the movie, Coraline and her parents are in the garden planting roses and Miss Lovett comes too. I don't know, get her money or whatever landlords do and the camera pans out and the last f 
frame of the movie is us looking down at the garden, paralleling the um, aerial shot in the other world, where we saw it looking like Coraline's face. And here it's shaped like the Beldum's face. I'm so serious. Like, go look. It looks like the Beldum's face. Do you understand how much seeing that messed me up? <laughs> but but it, it, it did get me thinking, what if the entire Pink Palace is the Beldum? And the other world is just her stomach, slowly digesting the souls that she ensnares in her trap. If that garden is her face, it would make the house like a torso, you know, stomach area-ish, right? Not only that, but the way that the doorway to the other world looks is pretty reminiscent of a gullet, you know, all round and tube-like with that slight accordion stretch to it. And when Coraline crawls through it, it's clearly very soft and almost flesh-like. The ghost children's souls aren't munched up right away and put in the physical moving other mother's belly, either like you'd expect from a monster that wants to eat you. And that's because she's busy eating them all the time because they're already in her belly being digested over time. So, as long as Coraline lives on the Pink Palace property, she's not out of reach of the Beldum. But you say, wait, she locked the door and threw the key down the well with the other hand. Surely the Beldum will just starve with her stomach locked forever. Well, I don't know how to say this, but Coraline kind of got played. <laughs> I said, well. <laughs> well, that's funny. Okay, wait. Um... So there's this really weird random throwaway line near the start of the movie where YB says something like, The well is supposed to be so deep that if you look up from the bottom of the well, you see stars even during the day. And then they just breeze past that incredibly weird sentence. And something similar is said in the book, I think by the cat, but again, it's been ages since I read it, so I might be wrong. But someone in the book goes on about how if you look up from the bottom of a mine shaft, it looks like the night sky. But the fact that this throwaway line that's never elaborated on is said in both is very sus to me. A small overlooked detail of the other world is that it's literally always night when you're there, when you look up. Even after Coraline goes to sleep and wakes up there, it's still dark out. Even when Coraline enters the other world during the day, when you get out there, it's dark. Which makes you wonder, is, is this the bottom of a mine shaft? Is, is the well another entrance into the other world? You know, maybe like the butt intestines? <laughs> we already know through the cat that there's multiple ways to enter and exit the other world, so there's no reason for the well not to be one. Especially with how incredibly similar the well looks to the other main entrance, the doorway, when looking down at it. Like, they look really similar, guys. Really, really similar. Also, in Coraline's first um, meeting with Miss Pink and Forcible, they say a bunch of weird pseudo-prophetic nonsense and give equally pseudo-prophetic nonsense advice. Except the prophecies aren't very far off, just kind of confused, like there being a tall, handsome beast in Coraline's future. And the Beldum is pretty tall, and Loki has a model-esque bone structure. You, you can see how her throwing the key and hand down the well was a hilarious way to combat the Beldum now, right? 
She just gave her key and hand back on a silver platter. Her hand is smashed to bits, but I'm sure someone with her power can eventually fix it up. And if, like, if she has it in her possession at least. Also something worth noting is that when the ghost children come to Coraline in her dreams, they're, they're in the style of Van Gogh's Starry Night. You know, Starry Night, like, like the bottom of a mineshaft. Is that enough of a twist for you? Because, well, too bad, there's even more to this. The theories are right so far, but for it to be perfect, it would also have to solve one of the bigger plot holes in the film to make it one of the more logical explanations. And one of the biggest plot holes in this film is, if Miss Lovett had the doll because it looked like her sister, as Wybie claims, and we saw in the opening sequence how the Beldum, how how the Beldum changes it to look like Coraline, how did the Beldum get it? and change it to look like Coraline, who she'd never seen, and then drop it off back at Miss Lovett's for YB to find. That's very off chronology-wise. But it does make sense when you consider something truly sinister. The possibility of the Lovett's being in cahoots with the Beldum. Yeah. And you might be wondering why she would help the creature that took her sister. But there's another question just there that you should be wondering. Why did the Beldum only take one of the two? She can clearly digest more than one person at a time. How was she able to stay there till adulthood when she moved out and divided the mansion up without a confrontation with the Beldum? The likeliest explanation I can think of is she made some kind of deal with her for her freedom. Maybe she was the child that got first, that got caught first, and in a moment of desperation was like, No, take my sister instead. And the Beldum was like, Interesting. Fine, but you can, but you need to feed me another child at some point within 50 years. And she reluctantly agreed. Which should explain why Coraline's family moves in after decades of never renting to people with kids. Maybe she even feared that the Beldum would come for Wybie because he was at a prime age for it. And she's clearly pretty overprotective of him. So decided now was the time to feed the Beldum to keep her grandson safe. This explains how the Beldum knew what Coraline looked like. Because Miss Lovett would probably have met the family or seen what they looked like at some point during the process of getting the lease and been able to describe what Coraline looked like and drop the doll off with the Beldum for reconstruction. Why be showing Coraline the well at the start of the movie then becomes a really clever way to give her a false sense of security about it, which is the Beldum's whole thing. You know, thinking it can't be anything, it can't be a part of anything if another kid is the one showing it to me, right? He comes up again to help her at the end of the movie, but what he's really doing is making damn sure that the key in hand goes back into the other world. Is also the way he keeps ignoring her or abruptly changing the subject when she asks more about the doll, which is something the other YB does too when Coraline asks him if being made silent hurt and he points to that random floating blue thing that just comes out of nowhere to distract her from that. This makes them showing up 
as the Joneses are gardening the, you know, the garden area, as the camera does that aerial pan to reveal that the garden has the Beldum's face, such an eerie scene. And I just love the idea so much, my friends. It's like, I, I don't know if I fully consider this idea like canon, but I love toying with these weird theories. Um, yeah, that's kind of all I have to say about Coraline. Well, not really. I have a whole bunch more to say about this movie. I could talk about it forever. But yeah, I'm going to cut off the episode here or I'm going to run for like two hours. Uh, so, announcement, I'm kind of going to be taking a break from Droning Quarter for a while to focus on some other projects. I'll be back in, sep almost said September, September is so long from now. Uh, I'll be back in December maybe, hopefully with, hopefully with something pretty special, especially if you're, you know, South African local. Don't know how that's gonna go yet, so I can't say too much, but I'm excited for that if it works out. And yeah, I'm going to be focusing on my music. I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm also a musician that goes by Beach Whale as my stage name, I guess that's the word. I've kind of got this concept EP idea that I want to work on. Hopefully that goes well. I'm pretty excited by the idea. So yeah, for the last time in a while, this has been Drone Encoded. Peace.